0: This reading is taken from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Sorry. Uh, then why then is it written that son of man must suffer so much and be rejected but I tell you Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished just as is written about him I think this is, yeah,
1: we're good. Hi, good evening. Nice to see you all in this very atmospheric setting. I Hope you're doing good. Um, so I'm gonna start by telling you um, a bit of an embarrassing story. Uh, several years ago now, Owen, my husband, and I were at a wedding um, in London of two of his university friends, and um, the wedding was taking place in a church called All Souls Langham Place, which you may have heard of, some of you, it's quite a famous church anyway in London, and it's the, it was the church where um, a, a famous Christian guy called the Reverend John Stott uh, was the vicar for, yeah, we've got some nods, some people know, uh, was a vicar for many, many years, and I guess that he was considered uh, He's gone to be with the Lord now, but he was considered probably to be one of the kind of leading uh, Christian uh, people of the 20th century and wrote loads of books, preached some great sermons, etc. And anyway, um, he was uh, a close friend of the bride um, who this wedding was. So Owen and I, you know, seizing our moment on our way into the church, um, into the reception. Uh, saw this man who we had heard the bride refer to throughout the day as uncle john so like right let's just go chat to him so we went over um and uh, <laughs> it's awful when you think about this isn't it but we went over to him and we were you know shook his hand and really genuinely thanked him for his contribution to the the church worldwide and uh, he looked a little surprised but we just put it down to you know wonderful Christian humility. Um, And then he started sort of talking a bit, um, asking questions about us, and we were living in Oxford at the time, and he said about how his daughter um, (laughs) lived in Oxford. And as he said this, I was surprised because I was pretty certain that John Stott didn't have any children. And at that moment, I looked out the corner of my eye, and the best man, who was also one of Owen's uni friends, who knew exactly what we had done, was cracking up with laughter. We'd got the wrong guy. (laughs) This man was, in fact, the genuine Uncle John of the bride. And he may have been an absolute hero and a lovely guy, but he certainly didn't have the lengthy Wikipedia entry that the Reverend John Stott does. We'd got the wrong guy, and we'd hopefully been put off uh, schmoozing um, ever since that moment. (laughs) Passages like this passage, Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration of Jesus, are there partly so that when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth, when it comes to Jesus Christ, we don't get the wrong guy. You know, we know who he is. It's this incredible moment where just three of the disciples, Peter, James and John, are taken up this mountain. And whilst they're there, before their very eyes, Jesus is transfigured. He's kind of like metamorphosized as they look at him. You know, they see his, his glory, the, the fullness of who he is. He is God himself in all his splendor, in all his brilliance, in all his beauty. What an incredible sight it must have been. And their words fail them, really. And they, they say stuff like he's, you know, uh, whiter, bleached whiter. Uh, than you can imagine and um, the, uh, with him appears um, Elijah and Moses and they start talking um, in Luke's account we've got an account of this in uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke's gospel and in Luke's account we are told that Elijah and Moses and Jesus actually discuss Jesus' forthcoming crucifixion and then the voice of God the Father says this is my son whom I love listen to him Peter, James, and John, listen to him. Look at how brilliant he is. Look at how splendid he is in his glory. Listen to him. Now, I read this passage, um, I think it was probably about eight months ago, and um, a verse in it just struck me so much. You know, sometimes you have those moments where the Holy Spirit just really draws your attention to something, and ever since that moment, I kind of haven't been able to get this verse out of my head. It's become a bit like my prayer. A bit like my prayer for the people of God and for the church in the West as well. Verse 8 says, Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. All that they saw was Jesus, he was everything, he was all that they saw and in a sense that's kind of just Mark giving us some information, it's just descriptive, it means that Elijah and Moses and Jesus were there at one point and then now at this point Elijah and Moses have gone (laughs) but in another way I think that that verse means so much more, all they could see was Jesus Suddenly everything else had paled into insignificance and they had seen him for who he really is. In all of his glory, God himself with them. And nothing else really mattered anymore. All they could see was Jesus. And it's kind of been making me, that, that verse, ask um, a few questions of myself. And um, I'd like you as well this evening to ask these questions too with me. Firstly... Who are you looking at? Who are you looking at? This passage, as I said, and passages um, a bit before it in Mark's gospel, like where Jesus is baptized and we again, interestingly, hear the voice of God the Father from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, this is who he is, this is his identity. Passages like that, passages like this, uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, they all add up to show us Who Jesus really is, who it is that we're looking at to ensure that we don't get the wrong guy. This isn't just, you know, Jesus isn't just another impressive prophet like Elijah, who was there as well. No, he isn't just another leader of the people of God like Moses was. This is the one who has power over nature. This is the one who the disciples had seen offer forgiveness of sins. This is the one who claimed to be God in the flesh. Disciples, us, don't get the wrong guy. Do you know who it is that you're looking at? This is God himself with us. And all of those hundreds of years where God's people had been waiting for the promised one the one who would bring uh, the day of the Lord, the one who would bring salvation, the one who would bring hope, who would bring peace on earth, who would bring light in the darkness. All those years of yearning and waiting and longing were over. He was here, the promised one, the Messiah. And so much of Mark's gospel is about proving that case, laying that out for us. This is him, he's here. The waiting is over, the Messiah has come. Peter later on, uh, he's so impacted by this experience, I mean who wouldn't be, uh, that he writes in his letter um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, this about this moment of the transfiguration, so this is in verse 16 through to 18 of 2 Peter 1, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, i.e. we haven't got the wrong guy, we know who we're talking about, we know who we're looking at. We were eyewitnesses, he says, of his majesty. We saw with our own eyes. We know who it is that we're looking at. He is who he says he is, Jesus. And in that moment, when Peter, James and John see Jesus for who he is, when they get who it is that their gaze is cast upon, when they see him, it makes sense, doesn't it, that verse 8 happens? that that's the kind of progression of where this goes, that they see who they're looking at, they see Jesus in his splendor, in his majesty, in his glory, and then they don't see anything else. You know, Jesus is all that they see. It would be the same for us, won't it, when you know, scripture promises that one day, when Christ returns, every knee will bow, Everyone will see him and everyone com- will confess that he is Lord, and we will see him face to face, and we will know who it is that we're looking at. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that when you come face to face, and we, we have, if we're following Jesus this evening, you know, if we have seen the one who's fashioned the whole universe, the one in whom we find our deepest longings and desires met the one in whom we can make sense of life, the one who forgives our shame, the one who heals our past, the one who offers us a future. It makes sense, doesn't it, that if you see him, if he's the one you're looking at, that everything else would kind of take its rightful place. Everything else would pale into insignificance. I started thinking that I'd really like written over my life. Laura Gallica. all she could see was Jesus. (laughs) Nothing else compared with him. You know, yeah, Laura, she had other things in her life, of course she did, but actually it was all about God. And you know, that's what I mean this evening in saying this, not that we just get focused on the second person of the Trinity, but that we pursue God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that we pursue more wholeheartedly the things of God. Sometimes, though, I wonder whether my life is a little bit more like a page out of Where's Wally? You know Where's Wally? Those Everyone now is going to completely stop listening to what I say and just try and find Wally in that image. Um, I couldn't. I, mean, I didn't look at it very long. I didn't have time, but I couldn't find him. Anyway, we'll, t- we'll get rid of it in a second so you don't get too distracted. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've, I was wondering, I wonder whether how, you know, how many pages of my life you'd have to flick through before actually being able to find Jesus. Maybe it's ridiculous to compare Jesus with where's Wally. It is. But hey, that's what I started thinking. You know, what about your life? How many pages would you have to kind of go through? And how long would it take you to to find Jesus in there? To track him in your friendships, in your relationships, in your place of work? Is is all that you can see, Jesus? Or is there a lot of other activity and busyness going on around you? All they could see was Jesus. But is that all a bit too much? You know, this sort of Jesus is everything talk. Doesn't that sound like a bit intense? A bit too serious? Maybe a bit fanatical and a bit off-putting? And when I look at my life, I wonder whether sometimes it's almost like that's the conclusion that I've come to, not to take this too far. And when I maybe look and I don't know if you feel the same, but at the church in the West, I wonder whether it looks like Jesus isn't all that we can see. You know, we do Jesus, of course we do, but we also do consumerism. And we do Jesus, but we also do Christian celebrity culture. And we do Jesus, but we're still clinging on to a lot of our issues. And we, we do Jesus, but we need a lot of other stuff around us to satisfy us. And we, we do Jesus, but we do a lot that the world does as well. Now, of course, out there, there is kind of religious fanaticism, which some people use to kind of hide from reality and to disengage um, themselves from, um, from the real world. And it's um, obsessive and extreme. And that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about a people who are so aware of who it is that they have seen that the world around them is a better place because of it. That they know who it is they're looking at and that they are so full of life and that their life is so full because they know who Jesus is. They know who they're looking at, that all they see is him. And yes, we do our work and we enjoy the things we enjoy. I don't know what it is for you, but sport or I don't know, reading or art or whatever it might be. But we do them infused and fueled and filled with the life of God. We don't compartmentalize because all we can see is Jesus. And how is it that we do that? How is it that we we know who we're looking at? Well, we need to spend time praying every day. We need to spend time reading the Bible. We need to read these accounts that we have of the life of Jesus. We need to read of God's character throughout scripture. There's no other way. Every day we need to pray, we need to talk to God, we need to relate to him, we need to invite him into different situations throughout the day. We need to ask for his Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us. We need to spend time in his presence daily. That is how we will see only Jesus. How else? Well, we need to stop looking at ourselves. Stop looking inwards. So easy to do that, isn't it? To kind of cast your gaze in this direction rather than at him. We need to stop looking at ourselves. And we need to stop looking at others as well. At other people to fix us other people to solve our problems don't let your instinct be to go to someone else before you go to god go to him first when you feel broken go to him first when you feel lonely go to him first when you feel confused when you feel overcome depressed sad like life is too tough don't go to someone else Even to ask them to pray for you, that's a good thing to do. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But first, go to God. He alone is the one that will satisfy you. Not more love from someone else, although we do need to love each other well. But go first to Him. So relate to Him, know Him daily. Don't look at yourself, don't look to other people. And don't stop letting this be a desire that you would see only Jesus. You know, someone came up to me after I'd preached this at the morning service, um, someone who's much older than a lot of us in here, and said, oh, Laura, this is really hard. <laughs> this whole verse 8, Mark 9, 8, you know, motto for life, write it over your life, all she could see was Jesus. She's like, that would not be written over my life. And do you know what, maybe my comparative youthfulness <laughs> not trying to make myself sound like a spring chicken, but in comparison with, with her, um, was a real gift in that moment, because I just felt excited for her. You know, that she, she felt this lack. <laughs> she felt that maybe that wouldn't be written over her life. And I just felt full of possibility for her and like her days are not over. Don't settle. You know, don't sit here this evening and think, all we can see is Jesus. Isn't it just easier to go for like some comfortable middle ground where he's in there, but there's a lot of other stuff going on as well and look hard and you'll find him. Oh, there he is. Go all out. Don't settle. It's not too late. No matter how old you are. Let this be written over your life. Don't go for... Um, A middle. Go for it all. Because it's only when you give yourself fully to God that you will be fully who you were made to be. Only when he is fully in you will you be fully you. So know who it is that you are looking at this evening. And secondly... I want to ask us what is it that you're looking for what is it that you're looking for this passage moves on after that vision of splendor of them seeing Jesus and um, with Peter blessing me gets a bit of a um, bad rep, doesn't he, Peter? I mean, he's, he's pretty confident and gobby, so, you know, you've got to keep him in his place. But he says here, and Mark's being a little bit funny, he's saying, you know, Peter didn't even know what he was saying. Um, I mean, who would in that moment? let's give him some grace, poor Peter. But he says, let's put these tents up, you know, one tent for Jesus, and one tent for um, Elijah, and one tent for Moses. And in a sense, it's because he is remembering how in the Old Testament, where the presence of God came, you needed the safety of a tabernacle or of a tent so that you wouldn't be completely overwhelmed and consumed with the presence of God. So in part, it's that, yes. But in a sense, I reckon if we get to understand who Peter is, there's another thing going on here. Peter was looking for glory and triumph, the shine, the sparkle, the lights. That's what he liked, the, the success. That's what Peter wanted. And he wanted to stay there, you know, put the tents up. This is great. And, you know, Jesus, all that stuff you've been saying about the cross and how you're going to be rejected that's just embarrassing so pipe down with that and more of this shining dazzling whoa look at you you're brilliant this is amazing put the tents up stay here let's not go to the cross just before this passage um they have this conversation Jesus and Peter where Peter says where Jesus says who do you say I am and Peter says you're the Christ and Jesus says well I'm going to be rejected and crucified and Peter takes Jesus can you imagine this (laughs) Peter takes Jesus to one side and like tells Jesus off and says don't say that that's not gonna happen and Jesus is like no it is because you see not only did the disciples need this transfiguration moment so that they didn't get the wrong guy they knew who they were looking at they needed it so that they would get the pattern of the kingdom right too because actually the kingdom of God isn't about success the kingdom of God isn't about the glitz and the glam and the shine. Although, forgive us Lord, in the church sometimes we make it seem like that's what it is about. The kingdom of God, the pattern of the kingdom, and Jesus shows us this, is about a life laid down. is about sacrifice, is about self-giving, it's about pouring yourself out for others. That's the pattern of the kingdom. Not this kind of celebrity, glitz, glam, hype. But the glory, the glory is in that too. You know, don't be mistaken. The glory is in the cross. The glory is in the way of a life laid down. That stuff that you'll do that no one will ever know about. The thankless tasks, the things forgotten. The pattern of the kingdom you see is not about success, but about surrender about laying your life down. So what is it that you are looking for? Success? Achievement? Glamour? The sparkle? The shiny stuff? Or actually, do you want to know afresh as you look at Jesus, the one who models this for us, the glory, however paradoxical sometimes that might seem, the glory of self-giving? The glory of that which is done in the quiet place. The servant-heartedness. The humility. And maybe in order for this to happen, in order for this to be all that we see of Jesus, we need to get rid of some stuff. Some stuff that will distract us. Maybe it actually is physical stuff. I don't know. Having too much stuff can be a distraction. Or maybe it's changing slightly our way of thinking about our future, what we're looking for to satisfy us, to fulfill us. Maybe we need to ask God how it is that he wants us to pour ourselves out for those around us. And thirdly, I wanna ask us, where are you gonna look when the scene changes? Where are you gonna look when the scene changes? It's really interesting what happens after this transfiguration moment. Um, After we have this kind of mountaintop incredible experience of the glory of Jesus being seen, uh, they go, if you read, you can read of this um, from verse 14 onwards. The disciples go and they see uh, evil and brokenness and the reality of a fallen world face to face. They come Encounter uh, with a boy whose uh, life is caught up by an evil spirit and he has seizures. And then, after he heals this boy, Jesus starts to talk about how, again, he's trying to get it into their heads, how he too will come face to face with evil and with suffering and with the realities of a broken and fallen world as he is crucified. What an interesting progression that from the wow moment, that mountaintop glorious scene of the, of the reality of who Jesus is, there's going to be a movement in down into the valley of the shadow of death. The scene will change. It will shift. Because you see, when you're in the valley of death, when suffering comes, when struggle comes, you need to remember who it is who is with you on the mountain too who it is that you're looking at? When the going gets tough, who is it that you can see? When the going gets tough, when the suffering comes, when the scene changes, and it's not a mountaintop glorious experience, but a valley of challenge, of of suffering, of death, who is it that you're looking at? You know, what if the world, and it doesn't bear thinking about, obviously, But what if the world were to throw at you your biggest nightmare? I don't know what that might be for you, the thing that you dread the most. We've all got those things, those fears that we have. The thought of cancer, of losing a friend, of debt, of unemployment. If those things came crashing in, or or maybe they have, into your life, if those things came crashing in, would it be for you game over? Would your gaze be permanently down? The invitation for us this evening, when the scene changes, is to remember who it is that we're looking at. Jesus Christ, the one who is risen, the one who is alive, the one who has smashed evil in the face, the one who is our everything, the one who satisfies us, our deepest longings. Only he can fulfill us. Nothing else is eternal. Only him. When the scene changes and all we can see is Jesus, in a sense, we become untouchable. No, nothing can shake us. Not that we become unhuman and we don't cry and we don't groan when stuff is wrong. And, you know, we need to acknowledge that those things, if they came, were not good and not right. But actually, if we're fixing our gaze on Jesus, if we're looking at him, then nothing ultimately can touch us. Because when Jesus is the object of your affection, when Jesus is where your gaze is set, when you are looking at him, nothing else matters. Suddenly, all they could see was Jesus. And with Jesus, when you're looking at him, the risen resurrected lord who has power over the biggest evil of death itself even death has lost its sting hasn't it for us in jesus so where will you look when the scene changes will you look down or will you look to him will you look inwards or will you look to others or will you look to jesus will you set your affections on him and finally who's looking at you who is looking at you so who are you looking to what are you looking for where will you look when the scene changes but who actually is looking at you you know long before this mark 9 verse 8 moment of them being brought to a point where all that they could see was Jesus, that he was everything, that everything else kind of took its rightful place in the light of who he is. Before that moment, listen to what we read at the beginning of Mark's gospel. This is the very first chapter, which is called the calling of the first disciples. As Jesus, this is verse 16, walked beside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19, when he had gone a little further, he saw James. You see, long before we look at Jesus, he looks at us. He is the one who sees Zacchaeus up in that tree. He is the one who, a few chapters Um, Well, the next chapter even, after the transfiguration, he, in that encounter with the rich man, we read in verse 21 that he looked at the rich man and he loved him. You see, before we have looked at him, he, in all love and affection for you this evening, looks at you. Before we wake up in the morning and turn our thoughts to him, he's beaten us to it. He's looking at you with love, and he thinks that you are glorious. You know, before we cast our gaze on Jesus, before he is the object of our affection, we are the object of his. Who is looking at you this evening? Jesus. The one who loves you, the one who can satisfy your every longing, the one who makes you whole. Way back in the first book of the Bible, the very first book in Genesis, there's this interesting story uh, where Abraham sleeps with Hagar, uh, his wife's servant. And then she becomes pregnant and is a source of um, a jealousy and frustration uh, for Sarah, Abraham's wife. And as a result of this, she's cast out of Abraham's household and she has to flee. And she goes, poor Hagar, and and hides herself to be unseen in the wilderness but do you know what happens to her it's such an interesting moment I love it the angel of the lord interestingly some people think the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ God himself goes and he finds her he seeks her out in the wilderness where she thinks she's been hidden and forgotten and unloved and unlooked upon by anyone. God goes and he finds her. He's looking for her. And do you know what she says of him after he comforts her and, and fills her with um, hope and future? He says, uh, she says of him, you are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who. Who sees me. Don't believe that you are unseen this evening. You are seen and loved and cherished and precious and valuable with a future, with hope, by the one himself. You are seen tonight by Jesus. He is looking at you. So how about you look back at him and at only him and in the process, everything else? The distractions, the comparisons, the insecurities, the issues, the ambition, the misplaced drives of our hearts, all of those just fall away as you see him looking at you with love and with grace. I'm going to take a moment to pray that verse over us, almost like a kind of, um, I guess, a, a prophetic statement that this is what can be written over each one of our lives. That Mark 9, verse 8 and what I'd love you to do is to, as I, as I pray that, to make that personal, and don't force yourself, but if that is what you want, if you don't want to be distracted, but you want to be wholeheartedly pursuing the one who, who sees you and loves you, then make that prayer yours. Why don't we just close our eyes? And maybe if you want this to be your story, maybe just put your hands out. And as I read this verse, grab a hold of it. Grab a hold of it for yourself. Suddenly when they looked around they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus.